0: Listener discretion is advised. On July 30, 1987, an Air Force amphibious helicopter was traveling just east of Air Force Base in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Below them, they spot Willie Charpentier floating out in the middle of the ocean all by himself without a boat or life jacket in sight. The Air Force crew couldn't set the helicopter down because more than 200 sharks were spotted in the nearby waters. The discovery of Willie Charpentier would ultimately lead to the first mutiny case to go to trial since World War II. What happened to Willie and the ship he was on? Why was he floating alone in shark infested waters? Find out on this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. everyone i'm your host alex and welcome back to narcosis into the deep this story is a wild one mostly because a childhood friend of mine katie told me about this one of the main people discussed in this week's episode is related to her and i had no idea about this until after i started the podcast it's just an insane story and with katie's permission i'm excited to dive deep into this case with you in this week's episode, we're going to talk about the crew of the Leslie Ray, what happened on board, what the trial uncovered, and finally the verdict. At 28 years old, Philip Roush was the captain of the Leslie Ray, a 65-foot or 20-meter-long shrimping boat. Phil was an experienced, well-liked sailor who spent half his life on commercial fishing boats. In the 10th grade, Phil dropped out of high school, left home, and moved to Tampa, Florida, where he learned the shrimping trade from his brother-in-law, Danny Richard. Phil is described as a handsome man with light brown hair and piercing blue eyes, almost the same color as the sea. He was a likable man and well-respected by fellow fishermen for his ability to handle a crew. Steve Cox, who was one of the co-owners of the Leslie Ray, said Phil was, quote, one of the better captains throughout the fleet. He was a nice, easygoing guy." End quote. While researching this episode, I only heard good things about Phil. Phil's family and those who either knew him or worked with him told me that he was a great guy. They said that he was a hard worker who would give anyone a job, and I just think that says a lot about his character. He was a trusting guy who just wanted to offer help wherever he could. It didn't matter who you were or where you came from. You can see a picture of Phil Roush and the Leslie Ray on our Instagram page at NarcosisPod. Willie Charpentier was Phil Roush's first mate, and they worked together for over 14 months. Willie said him and Phil were good friends who got along and never had any real arguments. Prior to their voyage in 1987, Phil and Willie hired on some helping hands, often referred to as greenhorns due to their lack of experience in the trade. These two new hires were Billy Gossett and William Rector. I'll be referring to these two men by their last names throughout the rest of the episode to avoid any confusion. So the first of these two greenhorns was Gossett, a 24-year-old high school dropout from California. At 17 years old, he joined the Navy, but was eventually less than honorably discharged. And he would later admit in court that he spent 90 days in military prison for lying to his superior officer being absent without leave, twice, and drinking before going on duty. His sister would also later confirm that he was known to use drugs such as amphetamines and cocaine. After being less than honorably discharged, Gossett hitchhiked his way across the country to his sister's apartment in Tampa, Florida. Within days after arriving, Gossett showed up to the Country Corner Lounge, a bar favored by Tampa sailors, broke and looking for work. Gossett asked the barmaid if there was anything he could do for food or money, and that's when she mentioned he should talk to Phil Rausch. The second of these two greenhorns was Rector, a 21 year old high school dropout from Illinois. Rector was 5 foot 2 inches, or 157 centimeters tall, and weighed 110 pounds, or 50 kilograms. Coast Guard officials would later recall him as the, quote, little man with the big mouth, end quote. Prior to accepting Phil's job offer, Rector only held a series of menial jobs and would later refer to himself in court as a rent-a-wino. This term is also interchangeable with a more modern term that I've heard, rent-a-drunk. It often refers to hiring people for only a short period of time for jobs that don't really require any skill or training. In Tampa, Rector would eventually become a regular at the same bar Gossett had attended, the Country Corner Lounge, where he eventually met Phil Roush. Phil told Rector, be at the docks by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning and you'll have a job. Until they set foot on the Leslie Ray, neither Gossett nor Rector knew one another. On July 14th, the night before the Leslie Ray was due to set sail, Willie Charpentier smuggled a woman onto the boat by the name of Maria Barnes. Having a woman on board used to be a violation of insurance regulations, but it was a fairly common practice winked at along the docks. Now, I looked into current Florida commercial insurance regulations, but I couldn't find anything stating that a woman on board was a violation. The only place I found this information was from an article written in 1988. At first, Maria was described as being the ship's cook, but later in court, Willie testified that he and Phil Roush prepared all the meals, and Maria's presence on board was to satisfy another kind of hunger. On the morning of July 15th, the Leslie Ray set sail. Behind him on land, Phil left behind a wife who he was recently separated from and a four year old daughter. In his court testimonies, Willie Charpentier recounts his time on the boat with Gossett and Rector. Willie stated that both of them smoked like chimneys, yet neither of them had cigarettes of their own. Willie would give them almost a pack a day until he was almost out and to pass the time, the crew would drink and use drugs, such as marijuana, and even took turns shooting Willie's 22 caliber rifle at sharks and the trailing wake of the boat. Since the large shrimp boat launched from a port in Tampa, it would take nearly two full days to reach the shrimp beds in the Atlantic, and Gossett and Rector had no work to do at this time. Willie recalls that these two men thought they were, quote, on a pleasure cruise, end quote. By day three, shrimping was in full swing. It's a job of long, hard hours, starting at 5 or 6 in the afternoon and continuing throughout the night and until late morning or noon the next day. It's tough work, and it was becoming increasingly clear that Gossett and Rector did not enjoy working all that hard. According to a news article from 1987, crew members were often paid according to the number of 100 pound or 45 kilogram boxes they can fill with shrimp. And greenhorns can usually make about $400 to $600 for three weeks worth of work. Adjusting for inflation, that would be about $920 to $1,300 in today's money. But according to a 30 plus year veteran captain, greenhorns can make up to $400 to $600 each week not just three weeks in total, but it ultimately depends on the size and the type of shrimp that you're going for. Phil and his crew were fishing for rock shrimp, which can be found off the east coast of Florida, and they're considered bottom dollar or the least profitable shrimp. At dusk on July 29th, 14 days after setting sail, about 26 miles or 42 kilometers off the coast of Florida, Willie Charpentier and Phil Roush were mending nets near the rear deck of the Leslie Ray. While preparing for that night's shrimping, Willie noticed Rector walked up behind him. The next thing he knew, Willie had been hit over the top of the head and the force was so strong it drove him face down onto the deck. Next to him lied Phil Roush, who had also been struck. Willie looked over at Phil and saw Gossett swing a ball-peen hammer at him. The hammer had an 18-inch long shaft and Gossett swung it like a baseball bat, connecting with Phil's head twice. Willie looked over at Rector, tried to grab his knife, and was struck for the second time with a chisel end of a pry bar. Willie yelled, wait, 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 I'm with ya. Rector hesitated, giving Willie just enough time to quickly jump overboard into the darkening waters. Willie later recalled the large amount of blood on the deck prior to jumping in, and stated, quote, I think Phil was dead before I dove overboard, end quote. Leaping off the starboard side of the Leslie Ray, Willie was covered to his waist front and back with blood. From the water, he could see the lights of the Leslie Ray burning through the darkness, and he watched in horror as the two men pulled up Phil's body and dumped him overboard. Willie then heard three shots fired from his 22 caliber rifle, and he couldn't tell if the bullets were meant for him, Phil, or Maria Barnes who had still been inside the boat's cabin during the attack. Using his previous lifeguard education, Willie kicked off his boots and jeans, doing anything he could to maintain buoyancy. He drifted in the dark, cold waters with blood sticking to his skin. Sharks were coming up and biting his blood-soaked, shoulder-length hair, and Willie kept trying to wipe blood off of him while occasionally spinning around to kick and hit the sharks off of him. Throughout the night, Willie fought off a jellyfish that stung him and two barracudas who tried to bite into his chest. After a couple of hours, the water became choppy enough that the sharks eventually left him alone and looking to the sky, he was finally able to locate the North Star and began swimming west. As night slowly faded into morning, Willie found himself almost in the direct path of a freighter coming out of Port Canaveral, but he was unfortunately unable to get anyone's attention. Shortly after that, he spotted the Aurora, a sailboat, and lucky for Willie, the Aurora's motor had died and the waters were calm enough that the captain could hear Willie's calls for help. The Aurora tried to raise their sail to reach him, but there was no wind and it slowly began to drift further and further away from Willie. The captain of the Aurora radioed for help, but before his message could be heard, the Coast Guard station in Port Canaveral received a mayday signal from the Leslie Ray at about 7.25 a.m. The mayday message that was received relayed that the captain and first mate had been lost overboard during the night. Gossett and Rector stated that they couldn't say when because the rest of the crew had been asleep. The Coast Guard was instantly suspicious of Gossett and Rector because the night had been calm and they knew that experienced seamen don't just fall overboard for no apparent reason. The Coast Guard was also aware that shrimpers work during the night and sleep during the day, so there was no reason that the rest of the crew should have been asleep. The Coast Guard called nearby Patrick Air Force Base to request assistance. The Air Force dispatched a CH-3E helicopter and while circling around the Aurora and the Leslie Ray, they just happened to spot Willie Charpentier. Finally, at nine in the morning, Willie was rescued. He'd been floating in the shark-infested waters for over 12 hours, fighting for his life. Now, it's rare to see a mutiny go to trial. They're so rare, in fact, that federal investigators told journalists that they didn't even keep statistics on it. But at the eventual trial, many different stories came out. Maria Barnes had originally told authorities the same story that Gossett and Rector first told them, that the captain and first mate had jumped overboard during the night and the crew was asleep. But after authorities told her that she could face serious federal charges for lying, she later testified that she had been in the cabin watching TV when Gossett and Rector came running in saying, quote, Guess what we did? We hijacked the boat and threw the captain and first mate overboard. End quote. Rector had been wearing Phil Roush's shoulder holster, waving around Phil's pistol. Once on stand, Gossett and Rector instantly turned on each other. Both accused the other of killing Phil Roush. Gossett testified that Rector shot Phil Roush in the chest three times after his initial attack. He said that Phil was still alive after being struck with the hammer because, quote, he sat up when Rector shot him, end quote. He said that Rector planned the attack and that the initial plan was to knock the captain unconscious, tie him up, and have the first mate take them ashore. But that plan quickly went out the window the second that Willie jumped overboard to save his own life. Rector, however, denied shooting Phil. Sobbing through most of his testimony, Rector told the jury that it was Gossett who planned the attack and he was forced to participate. He repeated his testimony that he only hit Willie once over the head with the pry bar and that he, quote, had nothing to do with killing that captain. I'm not going down for somebody else's murder, end quote. There was only one thing that these two men agreed on during their testimonies and it was that they were terrified of Phil Roush. They told the jury that they were in a, quote, mental hostage situation, end quote. They said that Phil threatened to cut their pay in half or feed them to the sharks at the end of the voyage to avoid paying them at all. They told the jury that they felt threatened by the presence of weapons on board and that they thought their lives were in danger. However, everyone who knew Phil Roush said that he would never do anything so sinister. Prosecutor Joe Magri said Phil was, quote, a good captain who picked up to what amounted to two hitchhikers, end quote. Magri argued that premeditation was the basic issue in the case and asked jurors to return a first-degree murder charge based on the crewman's plan. He characterized Gossett as a man who rebelled against mental and physical authority, and called Rector a, quote, "...hot-blooded emotional man," end quote, capable of turning off his emotions at will. On December 2nd, 1987, five months after the attack, after less than four hours of deliberation, the jury found both Rector and Gossett guilty of, 1. Conspiracy to commit mutiny, 2. Aiding and abetting each other in mutiny and revolt on board a United States-registered vessel, 3. Aiding and abetting each other in the assault with intent to murder the first mate, 4. Aiding and abetting each other in the first-degree murder of the captain, and 5. Felony murder. Maria Barnes was not tried or charged in this case. Rector and Gossett were each sentenced to two concurrent life sentences for the first-degree murder and felony murder, and an additional 20 years' imprisonment for the conspiracy, mutiny, and assault with intent to commit murder. Philip Roush's body was never recovered, and if it wasn't for Willie Charpentier surviving 12 long hours in the cold ocean without any means of buoyancy, Gossett and Rector could have gotten away with murder. Willie later told journalists that if Gossett and Rector had wanted off the boat, all they had to do was ask and they'd be taken ashore. But the questions that still remain today is why? Why would they do this? What could have Gossett and Rector hoped to gain from this mutiny? Did they plan to sell the shrimp in the boat or just cruise the ocean? What was their end game? Questions and rumors have risen from Phil Roush's murder and those closest to him say that they heard rumors that Phil had connections to the mob and was participating in marijuana drug trafficking. At the time of the mutiny, Phil's mother was living somewhere in South America, so it was rumored that Phil had faked his own death to escape his mob connections and traveled down south. Those related to Phil said that after his death, large black SUVs drove by their homes every day for quite some time. Now, I would like to clarify that this rumor was told to me by those who knew Phil and were related to his wife. However, I couldn't find any details about Phil's alleged involvement with drug trafficking or the mob, so I'm unable to provide anything other than these simple rumors here. I do, however, find it very hard to believe that these two men, who barely knew Phil, would spend both of their lives in jail to protect a secret such as this. Based on Gossett and Rector's past, specifically their drug use, inability to hold a job, and their extreme tempers, I think it's safe to say that these men murdered Phil in cold blood and were not part of some mob escape cover-up. I would also like to be truthful and state that, during my research into this episode, I was slightly skeptical of Willie Charpentier's testimonies and his involvement in the case. While it's true that he was found by the Air Force floating in shark-infested waters, sources did vary on the amount of time that he was in the water. Most stated that Willie was in the water for 12 hours, jumping in moments after the attack, but I did find a few sources that said he was only in the water for 3 hours. If Willy had only been floating in the ocean for three hours, it's possible that he might have had a hand in Phil's murder, but then later Gossett and Rector turned on him as well, and that's when he jumped overboard. But I would like to clarify that this is only a speculation of mine that I personally quickly put to rest. Although Gossett and Rector argued about who attacked Phil, neither one of them denied that they both attacked Phil and Willy at the same time. Maria Barnes also did not mention anything about Willie having any involvement in Phil's murder. If Willie did have any involvement, I have no doubt that these three strangers would have thrown him under the bus without a moment's hesitation. Billy Eugene Gossett was released from federal prison on July 28, 2017 at the age of 58 after serving 30 years. William L. Rector was released from federal prison on March 29, 2018 at the age of 54 after serving 31 years. Those who are related to Phil Roush believe that neither man served enough time for their cold-blooded murder. Willie Charpentier is still alive and, from what I could find, is currently living in Louisiana near his family. In an interview with the Sun Sentinel back in 1988, Willie stated that he would never return to Cape Canaveral because seeing all those boats would just bring back all those terrible memories. Today, the Leslie Ray is still in working condition and is part of the Tampa Maids Fleet after Cox's Wholesale Seafood was bought out by them in 2006. Thank you so much for listening to Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions on this week's episode, please leave a comment on our Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, or on our Discord for a chance to have your question featured in next week's episode. Join me next Monday for another deep dive into a marine or scuba diving accident. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week.